it's a little easier, easier that way. I don't have to worry when the singer's gonna, you know, finish and I'm nervous coming up. I'm already up here, it doesn't matter, let's go. Turn in your Bibles to a, um, a wonderful passage. <laughs> it is not difficult at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, there is a doctrine in here, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in the Bible. It's, it's real. It is the head coverings. Now, throughout the whole weeks when someone would ask me, because uh, David asked me to speak about a month ago, and I had already been, you know, studying this. He said, speak on whatever you want. So when someone would ask me after the fact, what are you speaking on? I'd tell them their reaction would be, ooh, yeah, <laughs> good luck. And so um, it's, well, we're just going to start. So backstory to uh, the head covering. It is a symbol. It's a symbol that we have in scripture. The whole chapter is symbolic. Um, we, we practice it here. We love it here. Most of us love it here. And uh, um, there's more in this chapter that I found out that was actually there than I realized. First Corinthians 11, backstory, again, like I said, it starts with Satan. Now, we have sinned because of Satan. Satan has a fallen angel, and he did, um, he did sin in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It talks about his sin. His divine order, Satan was an angel, cherub. Uh, he was the covering cherub. Now, this, this angel had the task of covering the glory of God. And when he uh, decided that he was going to be as God, he, the five I wills, I will establish my kingdom, he unveiled himself. Uh, Satan was created as a beautiful work of God. He was, uh, he was arraigned with all of the, the jewels and all the fixings and things like that. Um, but he, as he sinned, he came down to the garden, and he was, a, was, a, uh, was an instrument in the sin and the fall of man. So he entered into the garden through the serpent, and most of you know the story. Man fell, woman was deceived, she usurped authority, offered the fruit, whatever fruit that was, to the man. The man was not deceived. He decided to eat that fruit, and we have the fall of man. Um, you have Paul here trying to, um, I'm running out of time quick here. We have Paul here trying to describe this to the Corinthian church. He's already, he's already described this. Um, this isn't necessarily, um, or no, this is, this, this is a doctrine that we have. It's a, it's a head covering. Let me get into that. First of all, this is a man telling a woman what head covering is. There is a disconnect there. Is we are not. Uh, women who have to be implemented in this. We are men who are who share the glory of God, and uh, we don't have that symbol of power on our head because of the angels. Um, the Corinthian church was terrible, so we'll, we're going to get into that right now. Um, verse. I'm just going to read the chapter, and we'll start from there. It says, "Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ." Verse one. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn, let, um, to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as much as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it calmly that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, um, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. And we'll stop there. And uh, I'm going to try to 
cram as much of this as possible within the 15, 20 minute uh, that I have. So this isn't, we're not gonna go too in depth into this. I'm gonna, ha I'm gonna need another time. So this is an introduction to part one of the head covering series um, brought to you by the Lord, the Holy Spirit. Now, like I said before, the Corinthian church was, uh, wasn't the best church that we have um, or example of a church that we have in scriptures. Uh, this is the second um, epistle written to the Corinthians um, because in chapter 5 of verse 9, we have the Corinthians, or he's explaining, Paul is explaining to the Corinthian church that he's written to them before, it says, be not yoked with uh, fornicators. So there's an epistle that was already written. This is Paul establishing, again, the order that he has already brought forth. He's reestablishing it in detail. Verse one, it says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is Paul letting the Corinthians know, like, don't follow me, follow me when I'm following Christ. Um, it's not a do as I say, because I say it, it's this is the way that the Lord has established it. He gets into fine detail and he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Once again, he had written them previously and uh, now he's giving it to them in detail because they had not um, followed it in the first time, so he's writing them again. Um, verse 3 it says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So now he's getting into detail. Um, don't read this too fast. Joe Reese would tell us, if you read your Bible too fast, you could miss some things. In this third verse, it's very interesting as how he, break, he has a breakdown um, in the order of headship. So this is the Lord reestablishing the headship, and it's being explained by Paul. It says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of, every, of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Well, in reading this, I had always wondered, why didn't he start with God and bring it all the way down? The head of um, Christ is God, and then man, Christ, and then the, the woman for the man. Well, what we have here is we have um, a partition. It's a breaking. Men's authority is the um, example that we have in Christ and his ministry on earth. We have Christ walking on earth, dying for our sins. That is our authority. We have no part in the, uh, the headship or the authority of God, because we are not God. But as an example of Christ, or as an example to us, Christ is that example. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. So the breakdown, we start there, and then we go down as far as authority is concerned. But God um, has his, the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are equal and one, but one has decided to step down uh, so that the order can be gone, gone out through the universe. And when I say universe, I mean through the heavens and the earth. We have the angels that are looking into this matter, and then we have the uh, um, the men and women on earth that are implementing this, uh, um, this structure here on earth. Um, now it gets into it. It says, for every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonor his head. Um, an example of this, I was at boys camp. Uh, we were doing a hike, and the hike is uh, it's, it's treacherous. There's wolves and things on there in the back hike. It's about 20 miles. It's not 20 miles. It's four miles. But um, I was with Justin, and there was, we got an email. When you get to the peak of the mountain, you get phone service. So that was a relief. Um, we got an email that something was happening in the church, and this was years ago. And so we prayed for it. But Justin, I asked Justin to pray, and I was going to back it up. Justin was wearing his hat. So I asked, as he starts to pray, I say, hey, Justin, you know, you're wearing your hat. You're going to <laughs> dishonor our head. And immediately he took it off. I think that's the... That is the attitude that we have to have. I wasn't necessarily telling him to do it because of this, uh, um, because I wanted it to be good for me, 
but I was looking out for a brother, and the brother, I responded in, in graciousness. He said, thank you, and then we prayed, and the hat went back on. It's a, it's a simple gesture. Uh, verse 5, not so much. It's very controversial nowadays that we have um, the head coverings as uh, a practice in the church outside of this church that, I, that I've been asking. Um, asking around. Verse 5 says, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for it is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn, um, which means let her be bald. Um, but if it be a shame for her to be um, born bald uh, or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now, Paul gets into detail as far as when women are to pray and when men are to pray and how you're supposed to pray. It's an authority that we have here. It's also a functionality as far as the role relationships that we have. Back in the day, in the garden, you had men that was made, and then you had women. So the priestly duties after the fall were men were the only ones who can enter into the uh, holiest of holies to pray. Their garments at this time was, we heard it last week as Justin was speaking, they had a hat. Um, if you could, well, we're not going to turn to it. We don't have enough time. Zechariah, when we heard Zechariah chapter 5, Satan was accusing the high priest Joshua, and Joshua had his garments. It was filthy. But God had given him new garments and said, put a fair mitre on his head. The priest, when they entered into the holiest of holies, they had a hat on their head. It was like a cone-shaped hat. It was, uh, it was a part of their priestly duties. They were to wear this. This, the, the chapter in itself, what Paul is saying, is that it's more, um, it's more written to the men. The men aren't supposed to wear that. Back in the day, they would have that, um, the, uh, I forget what the, not a covenant, they would have that model as far as men were always to have something on their head when they prayed. Now, this would be a shock to men then. Um, so he's writing this necessarily to the men, not so much for the women. And I'm running out of time. So I'll get into the symbol symbolism of it right, uh, right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every church. So, so verses 7, it, he actually explains us why he's doing this or why, why we are to... Um, why men are to have their heads uncovered, why women are to have their heads covered. Verse 7, it says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. In the beginning, um, like it was said, and he explains it, it's that men wore, wore as, the, uh, as it was supposed to be a representation of the glory of God. So in the garden you had perfection, and then you had women made from men. It was not a delineation of, of worth. Um, it was something that was perfect was pulled from something else that was perfect. So you had this, you had this model where you had God in the beginning, um, or, or I'm sorry, you had man, Adam, and woman in the beginning as representations of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the head covering is a symbol of. The head covering is a symbol of Christ on earth. And I'm going to explain that in a few minutes. I'm going to explain that in two minutes because that's all the time that I have left. Okay. So, when he continues, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. He continues to say in verse 8, it says, For man is not of woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman. So, the woman was created for a helpmate. Um, but in her relation, her role relationship, she was to be, um, she was to let the men lead. Well, when Satan came in and the serpent, that was, um, that model was broken down. So because that model was broken down, you had Christ who had to come to earth and reestablish that model. Then you have the reason for that. It says in verse, uh, um, verse 10, it says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, the head coverings in some churches um, throughout Christendom is seen as a symbol of submission and authority. Well, 
<clears throat> yeah, that is correct. That is the symbol that we have, but that symbol is not different from what Christ himself had endured or gone through. God's never going to ask anyone to do anything that he hasn't done. So where do we have this model? We have this model in Philippians chapter 2. Now, now that we'll turn to, please. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, And we heard it this, uh, this morning. As soon as I find it here. Chapter 2, verse 5 reads, It says, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no of no reputation and took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the end of Jesus every knee should bow for everything, for things in heaven and things on earth and the things under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Wherefore by my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So now we have that model established after Christ is crucified on the cross, the veil is rent. Now anyone can enter into the holiest of holies, but that has not, um, that has not abolished just about um, the functionality of Christ. Now we have men that can pray without their heads covered. We have women that should still pray with their heads covered um, at all times. We're not given a specific time as to when there's, um, or a specific setting as far as a church is concerned as to when they're not supposed to pray without their head, heads covered. That model is established and it is, um, and Christ is the example um, that we have for us for this. Christ, as he veiled himself in and human sin, the likeness of sinful flesh, he humbled himself even to the death, the death of the cross. He is the example that we have for the head coverings. Now, head covering, again, it is a symbol for the angels. The women are, they are the direct, they can minister directly to angels with just the covering of the hair. So we see that the covering of their hair is a glory unto them, just like um, or in contrast to what Satan did, as he unveiled himself, a woman is veiling her glory, which is the glory of man, so that God can be the only one that can receive glory. Uh, a story that, uh, you know, I went to the bank this past Friday, and I spoke with uh, the teller. I had to get my card changed. Apparently someone in Fresno used my card when I was down here in Southern California. It didn't, you know. Yeah, so I had to change the card, but it took a long time. So I'm speaking with the teller, and I'm sitting down, and she asked me. She said, what are you speaking on? Um, I assumed that she was a, a believer in Christ, and so I told her, I said, uh, head coverings. And she said, ooh, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. So I was able to <laughs> explain what I had gotten out of the scriptures in a longer detail in the time that I had because, uh, you know, um, Getting your car changed apparently takes an hour when you're at the bank at Westcom Credit Union, but <laughs> um, um, she had surprised me by saying, she said, the, I love that chapter and I love the head coverings because it is a direct representation of the women's role that we should have implemented today. The men, if the men were to think blue and women were to think pink, then we wouldn't have the gender roles or gender um, confusion that we have today. So me being shocked, I was like, what? She just said that in California in 2016 <laughs> on a Friday? Oh my goodness. 
So I was able to explain to her what I got out of this in, uh, in detail. And, and it was just, it's the, the symbolism of it was, is unbelievable. There's so much more that I have to give you guys, but I'm out of time in about three more minutes. So um, I'm, just gonna get, I'm just gonna get into the symbols of it right now. Just as the rainbow is the symbol, is a symbol, the head coverings also is a symbol. The rainbow um, is a symbol, would be much more a symbol to the eight that was saved um, from the flood, and it's bittersweet, both symbols. You have God and his promise um, when you look at the rainbow, and the rainbow is, uh, it, says, it says to them um, that God promised never to flood the earth in judgment like that again, but it cost people their lives. To the angels, they look down at the head coverings and they say this, well, it cost someone for that symbol to be on their head. Because before we were all veiled, we were all covered, or, and we, we could commune back and forth with God. That is exactly the reason why um, the, the head covering is a symbol um, of Christ. Just as we read in Philippians, and we heard this morning from our brothers, we read it, and it was perfect because I had that in my message. Just as he veiled himself, women, when they veil their, your glory, it is much more a symbol to the angels when they're looking down at it as, oh, okay, God's authority is established here on earth. That you're respecting the head, and that head is respecting um, the authority of God. Um, another example that we have is, is women being the example of Christ when their heads are covered and they're praying and prophesying um, is... Well, okay, let's just say this. How many people needed a woman to get into this world? Raise your hand. Okay, that's everyone. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 12 says, A woman is of the man, and even, even so the man is also by the woman, but all things of God. Um, because women have power on their head, doesn't mean that men own them. Uh, that is just evident. That I mean, as far as what I've seen in the church and at home, men do not own women. Trust, trust me. But into that, that picture and that correlation, I just said, how many people in this room uh, um, needed to be born again by the blood of Jesus Christ? So to enter in this world, you needed a woman. To enter in the world, you needed, a, you needed Jesus Christ and his blood. That is the example, or one of the ex many examples that I have as far as uh, the head covering is concerned. I will get into detail with it, and I will speak in an hour's length about the head covering, when we're supposed to wear it, when we're supposed to, what it means more symbolically later on. If you guys have any questions, you guys, please ask me. Um, I'm going to call Jeff up here, but I need to know more from you as far as what you guys think of the head covering so I can fish it out of the scriptures. Uh, if you have a question as to what I said, if was but I mumble, um, you can rate me on my Instagram. <laughs> Let me know that, and uh, I'll get back to you. But right now, I'll just <laughs> I'll call Jeff up. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Well, thank you, Ricky, for getting me on base. Let's see if we can keep moving. Well, the Holy Spirit must be moving where, uh, I don't know if you picked this hymn or not, Ricky, but thank you for getting this started again. Um, in, in hymn 460 that we sang, verse 2, have we trials and temptations? Are there is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Um, I could stop right there because that's pretty much all I'm talking about. Okay. Um, no, uh, you know, Ricky brought up a lot of neat questions, well, topics and questions um, that cause, I think, a lot of churches and a lot of people to say, that's not fair. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that to the women. They have the right to not have to wear the head covering. So we'll explain it very well. Thank you for going in depth on that, Ricky. We know there's more to come, so we'll look forward to your next one. But is it fair? I, you know, I think as children, we like to ask that question a lot. When a brother or a sibling gets something, uh, oh, they got that. I didn't get it. That's not fair. I'm not sure life is supposed to be fair always, and I think you can drive yourself crazy and you can be miserable trying to make everything fair. 
Um, so with that in mind, I, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to be talking about trials, tribulations, struggles, all leading to faith, and hopefully tying it in with, with uh, uh, hope and love by the end of this. Um, I may go a tad long, but I'm trying not to. If you look down at your watch or, or a phone and it says Monday, well, then let me know, but uh, I hope we're, hope we're okay. Um, you can turn with me to James 1, very familiar portion of Scripture, just to kind of lead in. Mainly, we're going to be in the book of Job, but for now, let's go to James 1. And I just, just to bring up a couple quick verses to, to motivate the idea here of trials, tribulation, and, and so on, and what it, what it means for us and, and God's role in this. So James 1, starting in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12, tri- excuse me, to the 12 tribes scattered among nations. I meant to emphasize a word at the beginning, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Consider it pure joy. I think the world finds this very strange. Why in the world do you want to consider it pure joy? It doesn't say consider it pure happiness. Consider it pure joy. Joy comes from the Lord, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Jumping down a little bit further to verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Gives you a reason, all right, a reason for these trials. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. A lot of people like to think he does. Oh, he's, he's going to set you up. God doesn't tempt us. And we're going to now open into a, a great story about uh, temptation and, and faith and a trial. You may have already figured out it's going to be Job. I'm gonna, I hope tonight I'm not trying to summarize the book of Job, but to talk about Job's life and the trial and how it ended um, by, by just bringing up the idea of faith. And, and this is this just a beautiful book, one of the oldest books in the Bible that brings up faith and how we deal with it. And uh, Ricky spoke about what Satan was trying to do um, in his many failed attempts in the world. But, you know, we are a result of some of the work he's done. And we're going to see him come into play here. But questions to, that I would I, I hope to attempt to address here. How does God strengthen the faith of his servants, those that are living righteous lives for the Lord, the faithful and steadfast saints, people like Ricky? Is there a need for God to test us if we're already walking faithfully with him as his servants? Well, let's just go to the Lord right now and pray as we, as we continue here tonight. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, just this meeting and an assembly. And in this country, we're still allowed to, to be here and open your word and dissect it. And, and uh, we just thank you for providing it for us. We invite your Holy Spirit here this evening, Lord, to, uh, to bring forth your word uh, truthfully and uh, I thank you for my brother Ricky and I that we can share the, this space tonight and pray that we glorify you in what we've said uh, and what we say. May your word bless us here and may we draw closer to your son ultimately through all this. We thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm looking at right now at a body of believers whom I consider to be servants of the Lord. Yeah, you might be familiar with the portion of scripture where the Lord, knowing that Satan is wanting to try someone, replies to Satan, have you considered my servant? He doesn't say, you know, Satan, I've got a really wicked person in mind that you can drag down even further if you'd like. No, he says, have you considered my servant? So starting in Job chapter 1, and I'm going to go right to about verse 8 here. Job chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This is when the Lord has noticed Satan is walking around the earth, maybe bored and, and wants to do something. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. It doesn't say he's a perfect man, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Hmm, trying to figure out who he really is. A little further down in verse 11 of chapter 1, Satan makes a request of God. This is Satan speaking here. But, but put forth, God, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So notice Satan's asking God to do the work of messing with Job, and he has the nerve to tell God in the same breath that Job is eventually going to curse God to his face. So is God going to assault Job at Satan's request? Okay, I'll do that for you, Satan. To see Job curse him to his face and give Satan the satisfaction that he was able to trick God into doing that? If we read further, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Satan, Okay, behold, all that he has is in your power. Satan, if you want to do this 
He's yours. This is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Probably with a big grin on his face, thinking he's going to get away with something. Satan had to get permission from the Lord to have a shot at him. But sometime later, and we're not sure how long this may be, but Job receives news that his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his camels and his laptop and his, you know, and his servants were all either taken or killed. After this, his sons and his daughters were also killed when a great wind demolished Job's family's house. Really nothing left, but Job, Job survives and his wife survives. But Satan does not get the satisfaction of seeing, God, seeing Job curse God. Now, Job does get understandably upset, and in, but in verse, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1, a little further down, we see his incredibly reverent reply. I have no idea how he's able to say this, but I love the fact that it's in the Word of God. I don't, I don't think I'd be saying it like this, even if I hit my thumb with a hammer accidentally. Uh, verse 21, the second part of it, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. This is Job's words, blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, getting into chapter 2 a little bit, and again, I'm not trying to summarize the whole book, but just taking out the nuggets that I think are going to lead us to the, uh, the conclusion of it. Sometime later, and again, we're not sure how much later that is, Satan again comes to the Lord, and again the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? So he still considers him his servant. Job is still serving the Lord, even despite the beginning of this trial. God still considers Job to be his servant, even after this great loss. I would say Job is anchored firmly in the Lord, but tricky, insatiable Satan wants a little bit more. And after he asks God to further harm Job, God again permits Satan to mess with Job in verse 7, chapter 2. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, I remember having chicken pox in fourth grade. It was pretty miserable for about 10 days or so, but this is, this is boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. It's a, it's a whole new ball game there. So he's hurting from head to toe. There are other details involved here with uh, the latest of what Job is dealing with. But the bottom line, Job finds himself in a serious, miserable trial. And verse 10 says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's still holding strong in, in his righteous walk with the Lord. Jumping ahead to chapter 3, we, we're going to get an honest look from Job himself and hear his words with how downtrodden he is, with his position he is in, in his life right now. And this is all while he's still holding a reverent and worshipful posture before God. So starting in, in chapter 3, verse 1, afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed. Wait, he wasn't supposed to curse. Wait a minute, he didn't curse God and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. Just saying, yeah, I wish I was not even ever created. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Job's ready to be done. He's had enough. He's, he's just miserable, as you can imagine, with what's happened to him. Still in chapter 3, a little further down, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and, ex- and expire? He, feel, he feels like he just shouldn't even exist, you know. He may have a shred of hope, but it doesn't sound like there's much there. He's just in the deepest, darkest trenches and going through a trial. There's a little shred of, of hope here, I like to think, that, uh, that shows us that, that God is not done here. In verse 23, though, down a little further, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? I like that phrase, hedged in. Job is stuck, but he's in the Lord's grip, even if he doesn't quite sense it at this time. I think it's true when we're facing trials, tribulations, and in the midst of it, we can feel stuck. You just don't know where to turn. You don't know where to go, hopefully to, to the Lord and to his word. But when God keeps you in a trial, when you're stuck in it, it can be for a very, very good reason. So if, if that's the situation and you feel hedged in, the Lord has you in his grip. Please trust that. It took me a while to realize that at, at a, a point in my life where I was just going, I, I don't know how to get out of this. This is just, you know, maybe I don't, maybe I don't get out of this. And I eventually would hear the Lord's voice saying, you don't want to get out of this. I've got you. Hang in there. But continuing in chapter 3, a little further down, well, in verse 24, further with Job's words, for my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. He's being honest. Well, he's also speaking to his friends right now. The reality of Job's trial has hit him hard, and he's telling his friends so with these words that we've just heard, and with what we've just read. The seriousness of life and the reality of what it's going 
to mean to truly keep your trust and faith in the Lord has hit him between the eyes. So he begins to be given advice. This is where the, the, uh, the book kind of gets interesting. For the middle, the middle chapters, and he and his friends go round and round, and they ask him questions, and they're speaking to him. And his friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Great names, huh? I think if we'd had a fourth child, I think we could have named him Zophar. Do you need? Anyway. Maybe they were all linemen on the same football team back in, in high school. I don't know. But they're friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. So they actually go round and round giving speeches to Job, and Job replies to them. It goes back and forth. I think there's about three speeches each. The words that, that Job's friends have for him, though, are simply, for the most part, humanistic wisdom. They may look helpful on the surface, but what they're saying isn't always reverent of God. It doesn't typically point to God. And it's coming from a point of view that God doesn't agree with. But here's an example from, from what Eliphaz says in chapter 4. He's speaking to Job. Is not your fear of God your confidence? Is your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, Job, your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Saying that to Job. What, what is he implying? What's Eliphaz telling Job here? He's implying that Job is going through this trial because of something wrong that he did, because of sin in his life. We'll see later that God has a very interesting consequence for Job's three friends for how they try to counsel Job with their own philosophy. Because it's written early in Job, Job did not sin, the Lord, you know, sin uh, with his lips, nor did he curse God. And he was his servant. He, he is not in that position of, of being, you know, um, he's, he's not in sin. He's not living a sinful lifestyle. He's, he's the Lord's servant. But yet he's, he is suffering, suffering for righteousness sake, really. Fortunately, though, that's not the end of the story. And another friend of Job's com uh, comes along eventually and finally begins to point to God himself as being the one in control and the one who can be looked to for the truth and the one who can take responsibility for Job's suffering. So in chapter 36, we finally start to see Job pointed in a better direction by another friend. So go to, go to chapter 36 in Job. This friend who does his best to point Job in a godly direction, he's a little bit younger than the other friends, is a guy named Elihu. He tries to speak good truth into Job, but listen to how his human philosophy compares to that of, of God. So what I'm going to do is compare what Elihu is saying in chapter 37 to right next door when God starts to speak in chapter 38 to Job. Breaking it down by, by some subjects that are spoken of here. In chapter 37, Elihu is going to speak to, uh, he speaks to Job for a moment about lightning. Go to th chapter 37 and verse 3, verses 3 and 4. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Well, on the same subject of lightning, in chapter 38, verse 35, this is the Lord speaking to Job. Listen to the perspective that God can give him that Elihu was not able to. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? He's talking about the source of the lightning. Job, I know where it's coming from, all right? How about the snow? And go over to, again, Elihu's chapter 37 and verse 6. Verse 6 here, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. That's Elihu's observation of the snow. God's uh, perspective of the snow, uh, in chapter 38, verses 22 and 23, have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? The Lord knows where the, where the snow begins. He knows why it's there. He knows why he created it and how it's going to be used. Ice, while we're on the subject of various forms of water, um, Elihu's, Elihu's wisdom for Job comes from uh, chapter 37, verse 10. From the breath of God, ice is made. That's, that's pretty neat little wisdom there. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. What does God say in chapter 38, verse 29? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. God knows the source of it right there. He knows why the ice is there. How about the clouds, the sea, and the water? Again, over to Elihu in chapter 37, uh, verses 11 and 12. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning, and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. And God's perspective, this is the last part we look at here on this, chapter 38, but verses 25 through 28, again, speaking of the clouds, the sea, and the water, 
38:25, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? God is trying to get Job's attention. And, and without talking about the suffering of Job, he's saying, look at me, look at what I've done. Please start trusting me. Trust me again during this time when, when things are rough, Job. God can ask the questions that no one else can. And he, and he shows the infinitely greater perspective he has with the questions he asks Job, not only in chapters 38 like we read, but chapters 39 and 41. And I love God's command to Job just before he gets rolling when he's going to speak to Job in verse 3 of chapter 38. He's speaking to Job here. He's finally answering. God has been silent through most of this book here. Chapter 38, speaking to Job, now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. In other words, Job, do I have your attention? Can I speak to you for a little bit, and I'll, I'll give you some perspective here. Chapter 38, verse 4, great questions from, from the Lord. I'm going to read a few of them. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. A little further down in verse 12, still in chapter 38, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? He's not asking if he's seen the sunrise. Have you commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Down in verse 19 and 20 from chapter 30, where is the way to the dwelling of light? It's not saying, have you, have you seen and appreciated the light? Where does it start, Job? And darkness, where is its place, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? That's interesting through this. God knows that Job is suffering, but he doesn't address suffering or pain or anything like that. He's, he's not trying to really sympathize. He's trying to get Job's attention. I'm in control, Job. Please trust me. Chapter 40, a little bit, move, moving ahead a little bit here. Chapter 40, verses 15, 16, and God is now referring to his animals and his creation here as he's speaking further with them. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you, speaking to Job, I made as well as you, Job. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like, bar, are like bars of iron. You know, God is speaking as if he actually created this animal himself. Yeah, imagine that. Most commentators will say that this is a dinosaur that God is asking Job to look at. That's a fascinating topic to explore another time, but uh, maybe the second half of Ricky's uh, next part on head coverings. Huh? Anyway. Well, let's see, how, let's see how Job answers God finally and how God handles the restoration of Job. And as well, how does God deal with the friends who gave the humanistic counsel and the worldly wisdom to, uh, to Job in his time of suffering? Let's go towards the, I think it's the last chapter of Job, 42. Job 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jump down a little further, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. His faith has been strengthened. Chapter, or excuse me, verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He repents now, finally. He's, ah, Lord, yes, you are the Lord. I am not. I repent in dust and ashes. Continuing the, the next verse, verse 7. And this is where we're going to see how God deals with his friends. There's a neat picture here that, uh, uh, that is going to point the way to Jesus here, and that's, that's where I want to head this. Verse 7, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Again, he says, you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, excuse me, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that, the Job had, all that Job had twofold. It's really interesting there how God deals, dealt with Job's friends. It's amazing what you learn when you prepare something like this. I never had picked this up earlier. But he, he asked them to make a sacrifice for themselves, and he also has Job to do what? He asked Job to pray for them. This is a picture of God's grace, and the grace is awarded due to how Job lived righteously through the trial, suffering alongside his friends, who 
at, alongside Job where they were trying to give him ungodly counsel. And God has a way of sparing them, but also getting them to see the truth of what they've done. So I hope you can see who all this, all this righteous suffering is beginning to point towards. But as chapter 42 of Job concludes, God pours out his love upon Job. He lavished an abundance of blessings onto, onto his servant as a final purposeful conclusion to Job's trial. It's, it's as if God had this in mind all along for his servant. He knew he was his servant, and he said that to, to Satan himself. Have you considered my servant Job? Good luck with him. And as a way for God to show his greatness and power over Satan. Well, Job's faith in the Lord was tested during the trial he endured, but Job never cursed God to his face. Instead, on the other end of the trial, Job has a stronger and I think more personal faith in the Lord's faithfulness, in the Lord himself. The Lord knew, the Lord knew Job perfectly well to begin with, but Job humbled himself before the Lord along the way into a much closer relationship with him. I think ultimately that's what God wanted, okay? You're already my servant. Let's draw you in closer. I know you're going to suffer, but I want you. I want you closer. I now want to tie in uh, faith with hope. If you could turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9. I love the consistency between the Old and the New Testament, and this is... Uh, This is pretty good. So starting in verse 3 here. uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a familiar portion of Scripture, of course. Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the by the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. But I think the capstone piece to all of this is, and, and it's what brings this all together, is love. I have a question to ask then. Would we have faith in someone who does not present their case or their purpose or their presence with love? And would we have faith in a God who may or may not love us? And would we live or work or act with a real and living and thriving hope, if what we're hoping to see or achieve or receive might end up being empty or loveless, or if the object of our hope might contain deception or trickery or retaliation. I don't think we would. I think the faith and the hope that we have in the Lord comes from his love. It's, it's, it's true. It's obvious. It's why we can trust him. Another thing to think about, speaking of love, and t- hopefully tying in faith and hope as well here, I want you to think of why you believe that you were actually born on the given day that you have been told is your birthday. I actually believe wholeheartedly that I was indeed born on June the 1st, 1972. But I, I really don't know for sure, do I? If my, my faith in that being my birthday is infinitely greater than my knowledge of it, I have to admit. I don't, I don't know that. I don't remember it happening. It's the fact that we've been told that, there is, that that is the date of my birth because my loving parents were the first to tell me that. And it's their love and my trust in them that firms up my faith in that fact, not my innate knowledge of that fact. How else would I know what day I was born? So it's the source of the information that matters, which is why when God finally spoke to Job, his questions and his doubts and his wonderings and so on ceased, and his faith and in his omniscient, omnipotent, loving Lord received the enormous boost that God had purposed from the moment he allowed Satan to try him. God's love covered it all. So I wonder if we can see the connective tissue of Job's story and of his life to this, this other familiar passage on love from, from 1 Corinthians. We were in 1 Corinthians earlier. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, very, very um, common portion of Scripture speaking of, of, of love. I think it does a great job of connecting faith to hope and to love, and, and it's, it's so obvious in the last, the last verse of it that uh, you'll see, of course. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man... Or maybe we think, when I girded up my loins like a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I think of how Job came full circle by the end of his trial. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, Job's story parallels what this passage in 1 Corinthians is about. If you compare who Job was at the time Satan came along wanting to assault someone and who he was by the time God finally concluded Job's trial. So for the beginning of the book of Job, Job was already the Lord's servant, but the Lord wanted, to, wanted Job to have a closer relationship with him by restoring his faith, providing a greater sense of hope, and doing it all through love. I don't know if you ever wonder yourself with thoughts like, am, am I really trying to be the Lord's servant? If I'm really trying to be the Lord's servant, am I going to wind up in a miserable situation like Job? Am I going to be in a trial like him? Do I want to be the Lord's servant that badly? Is God going to test me like that as well? Do you ever have that fear? Am I the next in line such that God will say, oh, oh Satan, have you considered my servant Jeffrey? Have you considered my servant Ricky? That has a nice ring to it, huh? You never know. No. Maybe here's a better question to ask. Do we know anyone else like Job? Someone who is already familiar with our lot in life and our temptations and our struggles. Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Isaiah 42.1. And the servant whom Isaiah is speaking of is the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, his servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Well, I've always considered Job to be a book about faith, and I, and I still would say that. It definitely is a book about faith. But if you look at who Job really was in a nutshell, he was a servant of the Lord, an upright, God-fearing man, not perfect, but nevertheless a man who suffered without any seemingly obvious explanation for it. And through the suffering, he, didn't sin, he did not sin or blame God, even though he questioned God during his darkest time. This is not a verse in Job I read earlier, but Job chapter 30, verse 20, no need to turn there. Job 30, verse 20, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. Job's words, as he cries out there to God, sound a lot like those familiar words from our Savior. I know you've heard this. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said it on the cross, of course. I think undoubtedly Job is a parallel figure to Christ. Not equal to him by any means but parallel insofar as how they both suffered for the sake of righteousness, not judgment. So well, just to close here, I want to make the final point that at its core, the life of Job specifically points to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was the absolutely, perfectly righteous man who suffered unjustly for us, but was vindicated by his Father. And that was all done so we wouldn't have to suffer. We read about Job's sufferings. We don't have to suffer because the Lord has suffered for us, and we can look forward to eternity with him. That's, that's not fair either. It's not fair that, that we don't have to suffer for our own sins. We're the ones who should pay for our sins. And yet we don't need to. Thanks again to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And for that, we are eternally grateful, are we not? Amen to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that during times that are tough, during temptations and troubles, we know we can go to you. We know you have the answers. We know sometimes you will pull us in and keep us and hold us in a position so that we draw closer to you. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can have a relationship with you. We're not only saved, but we get to know you as you know us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the time we have to open your word. We uh, just ask for your blessing upon this assembly as we move forward. We lift up your name, and uh, we just thank you for all that you have provided for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.